You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, it's my honor to ask you to turn in your copy of God's Word to our sermon text for this morning as we continue our way through this epistle of joy called the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. You know, something interesting happened last Sunday morning uh, at this point in our service uh, is that uh, as uh, we were making the transition from our time of singing together into this, this uh, section of our service where the Word of God is preached for us, I was standing at the back and I kind of got delayed by the flood, the beautiful flood of children who were bouncing their way to the children's ministry. And it was interesting to see what happened when I didn't get up here on time. Uh, Many people started turning around and looking for where I was and what was going to happen. This is not normal. And it was interesting to me because actually recently a a faithful pastor uh, pointed out for me the value of that very thing. You know, in a church like ours, we have a fantastic worship team. We take very seriously the Sunday worship. We want it to go well and bright and smooth, and so much investment and time goes into it. I personally, and some of this is my pride, I want to minimize the awkward moments in the service. I like the smooth transition. I try to eliminate, though often unsuccessfully, the awkward words that come out of my mouth. But you know there is a downside to that. Because what we lose in that focus is what we actually gained when the flood of children slowed me down. And it is that moment when we can stop and anticipate. It created for us, it pressed upon us an anticipation of what was going to happen. There's something healthy about that. Last week, it was uh, somewhat unintentional. This week, it was quite intentional because I stood over there and I waited until everybody was out of the way. Because there is something about that that's helpful to us, to build the anticipation of what the Word of God will say to us. And I think that that is an important thing for us to consider in our own Christian lives. Because there is a spiritual version of that physical experience that we had last Sunday and even just a moment ago. What do we want our hearts to do but the very same thing that our heads did last Sunday morning? We want our hearts at every turn of life to be looking for the Word of God, to be wondering, where is that gospel What do I need to hear? What does God have to say to me to satisfy my soul, to comfort me in this kind of anticipation? In fact, I think that that's a central reason for everything God ordains in your life and mine. Every moment of true happiness and every moment of of serious sorrow is designed by the God of the universe to make you say, where are you? Where is your word? What do you have to say to me, God of heaven? And the more that that can happen in our lives spiritually, the better off we are. In a way, that is exactly what we are trying to do in every area of our church, we are trying to find more of the gospel. When we come to the word of God on Sunday mornings, that is in essence what we are always doing. We're trying to pull from the pages of scripture, the plain and straightforward reading of the Bible, the words of life, the words of good news, We'll even celebrate those words today as we take the Lord's Supper together as an act of showing in in real life what is happening behind the scenes in our hearts. And it is a beautiful thing. And so we come bringing that kind of anticipation even to this text and every text that we open 
because we're looking for the gospel. This morning, what I hope that we will find in our time together in Philippians 1, 12 through 20, is a renewed appreciation and focus on the transcending joy of gospel advancement. We care very much in our church about missions. We have a missions advocacy team that that is ever looking after the missionaries that we're connected to and, and reminding the rest of our congregation of the importance of being focused, prayerful, even going. And, and, and for those of us who don't literally go, that we are going to the nations in our hearts in prayer. And that while we're here because God has brought the nations all around us in a city like ours, that we ever have them on our minds and we're looking to share the gospel This gospel advancement is near and dear to our hearts. And what we're going to get to add into that or be reminded of this morning in this text is the transcending joy of being part of God's redemptive plan in the world. We're going to see that in three truths, and these are three truths about the gospel. If you're taking notes, here's the first. If we want to be the kind of people that understand and embrace the transcending joy of gospel advancement, we need to know this. The gospel cannot be imprisoned. This is what we learn from the Apostle Paul to the Philippians in these first few verses, verses 12 through 14. Paul talks about his circumstances, and his circumstances so often involved being imprisoned. Can you imagine how hard it was to be the Apostle Paul. As you read his, his writings in the New Testament, you, you capture so much of the struggle and the hardship that he faced and faced with joy. But you get a picture of a life hard lived. But a life hard lived for true joy in Christ. You think about what it says about his imprisonments, the number of times that he was imprisoned. He lists his sufferings. In fact, if you want to turn right over there, you can go right to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. And listen to some of the things that he endured as he puts these on display of, of ways that God was working in his life and in the world, even in these hard times. In verse 24, actually, he says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. You remember that this was the same kind of punishment that Jesus received in his flogging when he was whipped, and 39 times was also referred to at that time as one from death, because they found that when they lashed someone 40 times, it had a likelihood of killing the person, and that's not what they were after. So they backed it down a little to keep the person alive, but still make the point. Paul received five times 39 lashes. Three times he says, I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent adrift at sea. Shipwrecked out in the ocean. It's the picture of someone floating on a piece of wreckage for a day and a night in the middle of the sea. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such things, external things, there is daily internal pressure on me of concern for all the churches, how hard it was to live the life of the Apostle Paul. How do you get through a life like that? Well, when we look at the Apostle Paul's life, we see that it was Paul's commitment to God's kind sovereignty in all things that instilled in him the ability to see God's grace at work in the hardships. The Apostle Paul is what some people would call today a glass half full kind of guy. 
We see that over and over again. We've noticed that over the last few weeks in this letter to the Philippians, is that though he has all of these reasons, and he is well-versed in them, that he could complain or he could criticize or that he could become despairing and disappointed about what's going on in the churches and, and the plan is not going the way I expected and we're not having the kind of success or advancement that I had prayed for and, and this person is doing this and that person is doing that. He has this ability to see through the hardships to how God's grace is at work in his kind-hearted sovereignty over all of those things. You see, the Apostle Paul is a glass-half-full kind of guy, but he, he is not that for the reason we often think of it. When you think of someone who is the glass half full kind of personality, typically you think that that person must be out of touch with reality. Or that person doesn't really know what it is to suffer. That person hasn't had a lot of things go against him or her. That's why he or she seems kind of chipper and bright and and doesn't seem to be affected by the things of the world. But that's not the reason that the Apostle Paul is a glass half full kind of guy. He is that Because he knows that God is at work, and that is his priority. Therefore, as we look at this text and many others, we find that Paul does two things in the midst of hardship. One, he prioritizes progress. And two, he instills gospel hope in other people. Let's take those one at a time. The first was that he prioritizes the bright progress of the gospel over and beyond the dark circumstances in his life. Again, there are many reasons for the Apostle Paul to despair about his situation. Take just the one that he mentions here. He says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that, and now he gets specific at this current moment, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brothers and sisters trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear." In my imprisonment. How many times does the Apostle Paul write and preach and live and rejoice and comfort and confront from a prison cell? He died at the age of 60. He spent five and a half years of his life in prison. Think about that. Five and a half years. But what he sees in the midst of that imprisonment is not simply that his preferred plans were hindered. They were. It was not his intention to be imprisoned. He sees that he would be much more uh, advantageous or effective in gospel advancement outside the prison cell. That's obvious to any person. It's much easier to do the things that you want and to say the things that are important when you're not under such confined space and pressure. He knows this. He, He wished to travel certain places, but he saw in God's sovereignty that God didn't allow me to get there or he would get picked up by the authorities and, and put in jail for his trial and he's waiting. And, and this is certainly not part of his preferred plan. He also, in the midst of this, lived daily with the potential for his own death. At this time, he's, he's living in a, in a world that is, seems to be, in many ways, more dangerous than the world that we live in, than the country that we live in. 
we have certain due processes and laws and, and protections and, and ways of viewing people when they are under the, the eye of the authorities and how all of that plays out. But at this time, it's not the same. Therefore, he lives every day waking up with the thought, this could be the day. This could be the day they come pull me from the cell, not to release me or say that I was innocent or to send me on my way, but this could be the day they pull me from my cell and remove my head. But what he sees, even in these circumstances, is the outworking of the priority of his life and mission, and that is the bright progress of what matters most to him the gospel. And by so doing, because of God's work in the midst of those circumstances, his life is making a point, not simply about how to trust in God, be a a Christian version of the glass half full kind of believer, but his life is making a statement about the good news of Jesus Christ, that it cannot It never has been, and it never will be, imprisoned. He is delighting over gospel progress beyond the appearance of his circumstances. Do you notice what's happening in the midst of this frowning providence? In the midst of his imprisonment and his suffering, notice what he is focused on. Notice what energizes him and wakes him up every morning on the floor of his jail cell is that even in the midst of this, people are hearing my message. They're hearing my good news. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has been well known to all of the guards and to everyone else. Because of my imprisonment, God is showing himself sovereign and kind to use even that to deliver good news to the people who had imprisoned him there. And he goes on and says that most of the brothers and sisters, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. How does the Apostle Paul delight in the midst of such dark situations? He has an ability to see through them to the bright spiritual reality of what God is doing. That even those who are with him, though not all of them, he acknowledges, he sees work to do, that most of the brothers and sisters with him are being filled with courage in a very dangerous situation. You know what the Apostle Paul has? He has x-ray vision. He is able to see through the external shell of the situation, the way it appears on the outside, to see the deeper details of God's work. Do you have x-ray vision? You can have x-ray vision because let's remember that the Apostle Paul is an ordinary fallen human being. He was redeemed the same way that you were. He was chosen by God sovereignly the same way that you were. He was regenerated in his heart by the same gift and working of the Holy Spirit through the gospel to to, uh, enliven him. And it's that work that gave him the x-ray vision that is put on display in this text and so many others. To see through the external shell of the situation and see what God is doing. That's an invaluable ability for every one of us to pursue and chase after. We need to be able to see this. But that's not the only thing that Paul did. That was the first thing. I said two things. One, he prioritizes this bright progress of the gospel over any of the suffering that's going on in his life. It doesn't mean it's not painful. It is painful. It doesn't mean he didn't cry. I'm certain that he cried. It doesn't mean that he wasn't afraid at times. I know that he was afraid. But in the midst of that, he has his eyes on the ultimate 
prize of the gospel. And that second is why he too instills hope in others. He isn't just going around uh, doing his work and finding the encouragement and enjoying it himself. He is compelled to bring other people into it, to give the, the hope of the gospel to other people, in particular, other believers. Because he knows that he's an ordinary person. He knows that all of these other people, his friends in Philippi, are going through the same kinds of situations. He knows what it's like, and he thinks about what they must be going through. And so he gives them what they need the most. He gives them the hope of the gospel. He points them out to other people. He points out the things that are happening beneath the shell of the situation, what shows up on the x-ray of his heart when he looks at things. He has an ability to see them, and he tells other people about them. He leverages them for the hope and delight in others who, like him, are prone to despair. He is a voice of gospel hope. He goes around trying to spread the same kind of outlook, the same kind of worldview, so that others could have the same vision that he has. That's why he says in verse 12, I want you to know. I want you to know that even though I'm in prison, even though we're all facing these hard circumstances and situations, that God is doing his work. And here's how he's doing it. And he is good at giving the examples. He does all of this because he wants them and he wants us to set our mind on the things above. That's what he says to the believers in the letter to the Colossians. Or to the Corinthians, he tells them that we should live by the unseen. We live by faith in what we cannot see. We don't live by what we can see. We look through what we can see to find the ultimate treasure of our lives. And that's the good news of what God is doing through his gospel. Therefore, the first application this morning is that you and I must, and this is a fight. This is something that you have to pursue. Like you would pursue any kind of goal or objective that you love, you have to go after it. It will not just fall on you and happen. It's, it's a developed kind of spiritual skill. And the skill is learning to see through the dark providences on to see God's smiling face. This is what we need to learn to do. And this is the great challenge of our lives because we are human beings. We see what is right in front of us and that is the easiest thing to see. It is hard to see past the external to the internal of God's sovereign kindness. But that is what we need. That is what you need. So let's make it an endeavor to expand this skill, sharpen this skill, work at this, practice this, exercise it, exercise it together when these times come. You can know that in one sense, and it is the primary sense, that God always has a smiling face behind frowning providences because he is unthreatened in all of his ways. There's not a day when something bad is happening in the world in which he is worried about it. There's not a moment that he loses sleep he doesn't sleep. And it's not because he's kept awake by the worries of this planet. He's kept awake because he knows that he is in control and he is working his plans all the time. He is constantly unthreatened by you or by me or by the devil or by world leaders or economies or circumstances or conflicts or the approval of other people, he is constantly unthreatened. And therefore we know over us he has a constantly smiling face because he has the power to do everything that needs to be done 
to take care of us in the midst of this world. That brings us to the second truth for the morning, and that is another gospel truth. In addition to the fact that the gospel cannot be imprisoned, it gets out of its prison, as we've seen in the life of the Apostle Paul over and over again, that the gospel cannot be subverted. It cannot be diminished or or hindered from its ultimate purpose. You see, this truth that God is ever unthreatened leads to the big, bright truth that his gospel cannot be stopped. And Paul talks about this in such a surprising way in the next few verses, 15 through 18. Listen to these words. He says about his imprisonment and the experience that he's having there, which makes it all the more interesting that he is somehow overflowing with happiness and joy because this is the kind of thing that most of us in that situation would really struggle with. He says, some of the people around me, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Envy, they're, they're envious of him and, and it's a, a motivation in their hearts that they're, they're preaching the gospel not with pure motives, but they're doing it because they, they want to surpass Paul or they, they want to pick at him or they want to, to, to jab him. They are motivated by envy and strife, he says, but also some from goodwill. He says then, the latter, those who are doing it out of goodwill for the gospel, who are true partners with me, they have pure motives. They are preaching Christ here out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. They're partners together. They're not doing it in a way that is trying to embarrass me or shame me or or minimize my role or my voice. He says in verse 17, but the former, those who do it with the impure motives, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking, thinking that they are causing me distress in my imprisonment. Now, if you think about this situation, it is hard to imagine how you would not be distressed if you were the Apostle Paul that this wouldn't be a source of consternation and conflict and it would be troubling because these other people around have these impure motives and they're kind of doing, it's like a kind of rip-off gospel proclamation, like the, the message is there, but the heart isn't right, the words aren't quite clear, it's probably confusing people a little bit about what they are saying and what their connection to Paul is, you can imagine how this would be distressing. But somehow, he says, you know, they think they are causing me distress in my imprisonment. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you, they are not. He says, what then? Amazing picture of Paul's outlook about this situation. What then? An amazing statement about his trust in God's ultimate ownership of the gospel and the fact that the gospel, no matter what motives are behind it, it cannot be subverted. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and I rejoice. That is an amazing, an amazing thing to experience. It's an amazing thing to imagine that actually in the midst of that kind of wrangling between tribes and he's sort of stuck in the middle that he is rejoicing because Christ is being proclaimed. He's happy that the name of Christ is going out. We have on the one hand, these sincere preachers. They're characterized by love and partnership with Paul. We have on the other hand, the selfish preachers. They're characterized by self-interest and distress, trying to distress Paul. But what does Paul say in the midst of it all, and in particular, about those who are causing him distress? So what? 
you're not bothering me because I know that no matter what you do, the gospel cannot be subverted. Christ proclaimed is Paul's only real concern. Encouraging the lovers and disarming the haters. How disarming that must be for those who want to cause him distress and they see that he's not in any distress at all. He is in a way saying to even those selfish preachers, keep preaching. Now the difference is that he would not say that if their message was incorrect. If they were preaching some heresy or untruth, of course, we see him at every turn say, whoa, shh, stop. That's not the truth. Here's the real gospel. But in this case, he's not threatened by their motives. He's not threatened by the circumstances because he hears the gospel going out and he knows that the effectiveness of the gospel is actually in God's hands, not in theirs. We had an interesting kind of experience uh, practice for ourselves from a distance this past week. If you noticed online, there was a lot of hubbub about a revival at Asbury uh, College, University and Seminary uh, in Wilmore, Kentucky. There's a university that in the 1970s, there was a, a, a revival among the students and, and a, a kind of fresh concern about the gospel and seriousness about God and hearts singing out and broke out on their campus and it happened again about a week ago. And what it did was it caused all this kind of uncertainty on Twitter, which is the best place to find uncertainty. And everybody was kind of like picking at it, looking at it. And rightly so. I mean, the Bible says, test the spirits. We should be discerning and really coming out of that, there were two views. There's one view that, that it's all going well. There's another view that it has these deficiencies and these, these ugly kind of edges to it, or it doesn't seem to be ordered the way that maybe it should be ordered and all of that. But in the middle, you would find the Apostle Paul, and he would say, so what? Look at these people singing. Look at these people proclaiming Christ. Yes, there are deficiencies everywhere, but look at this. Look at what God is doing. It's a different kind of heart. To be completely honest, it's a heart that's not always mine. That's not the way that I always think about things, but I want to. I want to be this kind of believer. I want to be this kind of preacher. It happens a lot when I see a street preacher on the corner shouting. The gospel is there, but the, the method is not quite the way I would do it, or not quite the words that I might use, or not quite the tone of voice that I might have. And I think about the Apostle Paul. What would he say? So what? The gospel is going out, and it's not dependent on the tone, or the voice, or the circumstance or even the precision of the wording. It is dependent upon God who gives life through it. This is the secret. It's the secret of Paul's contentment. And it's the same secret that we read about in other writings of his, to live in plenty and in want. How does he do it? He does it by trusting God to do what is right and to supersede any apparent obstacle. This is the secret to his contentment. The great confidence builder in all of our evangelism, in all of our missions, is that no one will be left out who God chooses to bring in. That is the great confidence builder in my evangelism. Why do I share the gospel? It's not because I think I can convert someone. It's not because I think I figured out the best way to argue with them or, or win them. It's because I know that when I'm sharing the gospel, there is someone far bigger and far louder and infinitely more powerful speaking through it. And he will ensure that no matter what kind of fumbles, awkward words, mistakes I make, he is going 
to get his way. Whenever I think about that truth, I'm greatly encouraged and in a weird way, I don't know what is wrong with me, I always think back to the movie RoboCop. In the 1980s, I loved the movie RoboCop. I probably saw all kinds of things I should never have seen. That was probably one of them. But it was a movie about a police officer who, uh, kind of a gang of criminals who were ruthless and violent, uh, got a hold of him on a kind of sting that was going on, and, and they ended up really nearly killing him and seriously just maiming him in every cruel way they could. But he somehow lives through it, and he is transformed into a robot human police officer. He still has a face. I think he's, he sort of still has his brain, but the rest of him is robotic. And so he still has some of those memories. And there's this one scene, and it's a scene at a gas station. And one of the guys from this past abuse that he received, one of those criminals, is harassing the guy behind the window. And he, somebody is called on it. He realizes what's going on. He pulls up. He gets out of his car, and he, he walks over with his robotic walk, and he engages the person. And his mind starts to think about this memory, and he realizes, I know you. And so he pulls out his RoboCop gun and points it at him, and he tells him to surrender. And of course, he's not going to surrender. And then he says this line. And do you remember what he says? He says, dead or alive, you're coming with me. That moment lit me on fire as a kid. Dead or alive, you are coming with me. That is a statement of ultimate sovereignty and control of a situation. He sees that this is the person that he should take vengeance on because of his past, and he is going to get revenge. But it is on the flip side exactly the kind of thing the sovereign God of the universe says to every person dead or alive, you are coming with me. He is saying that when we are sharing the gospel according to his plan, but he's not doing it in revenge. He's doing it in redemption. He is expressing his ultimate control. And this is what makes Paul content because he knows, he knows who he has believed in. Paul's concern is content not style or motive. So if Christ is preached, he can be happy because he trusts God to happily work even through the, the foolishness of human preaching. That was, the, that was the motto, the theme of his life. And it is a beautiful reality that we should, we should embrace. So what should we do in response to this as we think about the gospel? We think about gospel uh, advancement in the world and the transcending joy of being a part of that. This is part of our joy. This is how you can be joyful in missions. This is how you can go to the mission field, not with a burden of anxiety, but with a burden of calling and expectation. This is the reason that you and I can share the gospel, not because we feel the burden that if we don't come through, all is lost. But because God is in control, everything he wants is going to come true. And it gives us the confidence that we need. Therefore, in response, we can focus. We can focus yet again on the message of the gospel without becoming so hung up on the style or circumstances because our desire is to rejoice in it at every turn. That ought to help us even on Sunday mornings together or in community group together when we hear someone say something else that sounds a little off, but boy, the gospel is there. It can infuse in us a grace to offer others. The reverberating message of scripture is that if you wrap all of your hope up in the gospel, you will never be disappointed because the gospel cannot be disappointed. That's the final truth this morning before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and it will be a brief one. The gospel cannot be disappointed. We've seen Paul's joy was not wrapped up 
in his circumstances or the way things appear, but his, his joy is wrapped up in the assurance of God's gospel care for him, his commitment and seriousness about bringing about his ultimate purposes in the world and that he will do it whether by life or by death. Now, in these last verses, at first glance, it sounds like Paul is boldly claiming that God is going to spare his life and release him from prison. Listen to the end of verse 18 through to verse 20. He says, but not only that, I also will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. There's that part. It sounds like he is assured that he's going to get out of prison and that that's what his real expectation or hope is. If I could just get out of prison and I just, I just know I'm going to get out of here. But then he says, this is according to my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. What I thought he was saying is not what he was saying. I thought he was saying, I just know I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to see you again. I'm going to get back on that mission and I'm going to mount the horse and ride into the sunset and we're going to make this happen and we're all going to be, we're all going to be together in the end. And while that is true in one sense, What he meant was, God will deliver me, whether by life or by death, and in either one, I will be happy because Christ will be proclaimed. It's just another reminder of the the importance of priority in the Christian life. What do we really want? Paul's joy transcends the issues of life or death because what he ultimately wants is to exalt Jesus as the all-satisfying, all-sovereign king of the universe. And this very truth, so central to the Christian life, has been brought down to us time and time again in in the, the creeds of our faith, the catechisms that we rely upon, even this one that should become be so familiar to us by now. The very first question of that Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Hear these words again. Let them encourage your heart. Let them bolster and echo the truth of these verses we've heard this morning that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him or to die for him. That's the secret of Paul's contentment in life. It's the secret of contentment in daily life, is to become so wrapped up in the good news of Jesus Christ and his his declared covenant, as we heard this morning, of love which he has brought us into and will never let us out, that he is in control and he is working for our good and for his glory. It transforms our view of death as Christians. You know what Christianity has that that makes it so powerful? It is not life stories. Those are great. It's great to have stories about people that accomplished great things for the Lord and and they were were well respected in the world. I think that would be fantastic for all of us to be well respected in the world. For others to gather around and hear what we have to say and they, they appreciate our church. 
But do you know really what makes Christianity powerful? It's not the life stories. Actually, it's the death stories. I mean, Christianity is built upon a death story. That's what it's all about. It's about the death of the ultimate leader, the king of the whole group. And that has really trickled down over church history. Such of the most impactful stories. Stories like the story of Jim Elliott, an American missionary. You know this story, along with four other missionaries, was killed trying to evangelize people in Ecuador in the 1950s. That's the kind of story that when that happens, it's shocking, it's, it's, it's devastating, it's saddening, it's surprising. That's not, the, that's not how we saw the story going. And therefore, there's this temptation in our hearts but to despair about it. Well, that's, how are they going to be... How are they going to be saved? They're not alive anymore. How how are the people going to be saved without those missionaries living and telling them? Isn't it their life story that is going to make the difference? Maybe. But in this case, it actually was their death story. Because it's the death and the response of other Christians in the midst of that, of that tragedy and the way that their, their heart's purpose and plan and their love for Christ was put on display that actually is what God used to convert these people in Ecuador. Their legacy, his legacy, Jim Elliott continues to inspire believers around the world to proclaim the gospel boldly and to trust in God's sovereign care even in the midst of persecution and hardship. It is because of his story that there are missionaries on the mission field. They heard about this. And God worked in them. Corey Ten Boom, another one, a Dutch Christian, who along with her family hid Jews from the Nazis during World War II. And eventually the Ten Boom family was discovered and arrested. Corey and her sister, Betsy were sent to a concentration camp where they endured terrible suffering and hardship. But despite their circumstances, they remained faithful to God and continued to trust in his plan for their lives. Listen to what she wrote. No matter how deep our darkness, he is deeper still. And though we may feel we are alone, we never are alone. Christ is with us in the furnace, and when we come out on the other side, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That's a death story, and that death story is full of life. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, that I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And he has made us, he is making us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Because we know that we can die for him. And in that we will not be disappointed. Even then, this is the truth of the gospel. The final application this morning from this text is simply this. Focus, focus, focus. Focus on prayer. Ask God. Come to the prayer gathering tonight so that we together can ask God to do these things in us. Focus on prayer. We need His help. And focus on provision. In the gospel, He has delivered to us gospel blessing upon gospel blessing. He has delivered to us everything that we need to be genuinely, truly happy and satisfied in Christ and therefore focus on that provision. Keep your head on the Sunday morning swivel. Where is that preaching voice? Where is that word? Where is that gospel that I need to hear and hear it? As I said earlier, we have such a wonderful opportunity on this last Sunday of the month to Hear the gospel voice again in the Lord's Supper, celebrating together what he has done for us. I'm going to ask those who are distributing the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward now so that we can do that. And as they're coming, this is a wonderful opportunity for me to remind you of some things to think about during the Lord's Supper. This is a time of self-reflection, 
self-awareness so that we might think about our own hearts, even the truth that you've heard today, and that it would trigger in your heart and mind ways to pray right now, to be praying, to close your eyes and to focus on Christ, to focus on what we're getting ready to do, celebrating the, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus for us, this incredible death story that has given us life and to ask him to make it settle into our souls, to focus on the provision that is given to us. And in doing so, to thank God for what he's done and ask him to keep, keep ministering your grace to us. Let this be a means of grace to us. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then this would be a time for you to reflect on what's happening, but not to take the bread and the juice. Because that wouldn't be appropriate. It's not that Christ, Christ doesn't belong to you yet, but instead that you would cry out to him the way that we are for you. That God would do his work in your heart, the things we have, we've been reading about today, and that you would come to faith in Christ soon, even this morning. And if God works in your heart in that way, we want to know about it. We want to walk with you. We want to help you. Or if you have questions about that, we want to know those questions and, and try to answer them from God's word, no matter who you are as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, they'll begin distributing the elements so that we're ready to take them together this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you in um, such need of focus. In this world, being the kind of people that we are with the pressures and the noise of this life, we find it so hard to focus. It seems that at every moment there is something vying for our attention, big and small, to distract us from what is most important, and we need your help. We pray that, that you would use the many provisions that you've given to us in the gospel, that you would use your, your word, that you would use us together as your church, that you would use even the ordinances like the Lord's Supper and baptism as pictures of grace for us to cling to and to be reminded of, to refocus around. And we pray this morning that you would cause us to do that. Help us to focus on what you have done for us in Christ and this good news that belongs to us. Encourage us, comfort us, and make us happy in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 